going to spend another uh, Sunday on the trial of Jesus and focus in particularly on the question that Pilate raises, what is truth? When we come to church, we need to hear the truth, right? Because we may not be hearing it from other sources. And what we imagine to be true needs to be measured, I think, by the truth that we have in Christ. And so we've described in the trial of Jesus that two kingdoms are in competition. Two notions of justice, two notions of the law, come into conflict in this trial. And so too, I think there are two competing notions of truth at work. Let me read again just verses uh, 37 and 38 of chapter 18 of John. Therefore Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So in this discussion, the nature of the kingdom and the idea of truth are very much interconnected. I'm going to talk about that and expand upon that. But should I not get there, let me say this here and now. And that is that in this understanding, truth and falsehood are connected to these two kingdoms. And the idea is that this kingdom of Christ, and I think that we can equate this with the church, is a holistic kingdom. That is, the truth is one that we're only going to, to discover in connection with Jesus as king. Pilate says, so you're a king. And Jesus' unexpected reply may seem to be a kind of change of subject from the kingdom to truth, but I, I think this is a misunderstanding. Power, kings, kingdoms, and truth are very much interconnected, right? Right? And of course, this is a trial in which the king's representative, Pilate, Caesar's representative, is presuming to get at the truth, especially the truth in regard to Jesus. Now, we know his question is misplaced, you know, what is truth? From the question, we know there are two notions of truth at work. For Pilate, truth is a what, a thing. It's information, perhaps. Perhaps a set of propositions. Truth is something that you are to determine from elsewhere. For Jesus, truth is not a what, a thing. It is a whom. Truth is not a set of propositions, but a dynamic living person. Truth is not out there to be discovered. There's no gap between Christ and the truth. The word which is Christ is not about the truth. It doesn't inform us of the truth. It is the truth. He is the truth. Pilate's not prepared for the truth. The truth is standing right there before him. But his notion of truth blinds him to this reality. The truth confronts him. And he cannot see it. And of course, this is the danger for all of us. Our very notion of truth 
may be an obstruction to receiving the truth as Christ is the truth. Jesus gives us the full answer. You know, Jesus doesn't say this to Pilate, but he does say this elsewhere in John. I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. And he equates the truth and life. And maybe we need to focus in on this. Think back to Genesis when there is a kind of disruption, you know, with the, the, the truth. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are the choices. And the first tree... The tree of life offers full access to God, full access to his presence. Now, we don't call it the tree of truth, but it's certainly representative of God who is the truth. The second tree is removed. That is, it's a choice. And the second tree uh, does not contain life. To eat of this tree is to enter into a deception. You know, knowing good and evil is held as a promise, as the serpent says, that you won't die, you'll have life, you'll be like God. And so life is held out as the end of the knowing. Knowing good and evil will deliver to you God-likeness of innate immortality. But the reality is that it entails death, not life. So under the lie of the serpent, this knowledge may have seemed to hold out life. And this is the thing that we're dealing with in this trial, right? This is a trial about life and death. That's what's at stake. In the first tree, the tree of life, maybe we don't normally connect it to truth, but I believe they're knowing God, having life, and this is going to be confirmed in the New Testament, is a truth that Christ is going to restore. Uh... It's truth by other means, you know. And Jesus will equate himself with the truth. And he equates himself. He says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one in Revelation. I am the living God. By him who is declared to be living. Hebrews 7, 8. Luke 2, 4 to 5. He who is living. Not to dimension, you know, declarations of, you know, uh, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself in John 5.26. And even at the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and John's Pope, and in that Word was life. So the Word, the truth, and the life are all equated confrontation with life is a confrontation with truth confrontation with untruth, a deception is a confrontation with death we can equate those two things, right? God is life he is the essence of life and the essence of life is God and saying this we already know what God is Uh, but we do not know it through the effect of some knowledge or learning We do not know it through a thought process. We do not know it against the background of the truth of the world. Rather, we know it and we can know it only in and through the life itself, only in and through Christ. We can know the essence of God only in God. In the garden, life is traded for knowing. But life is already the truth to be known. 
And so it's this sort of truth, this immediate confrontation with Jesus, the truth, that Pilate faces and cannot comprehend. Pilate is accustomed to a very different understanding, and I believe we all are just by the condition of having lived past, you know, through the fall. His notion of truth, first of all, is not connected to life. It's connected to death. He imagines that Rome is the truth, that Caesar is the true one. Can Rome give life? It can only define it, it can shape it, it can subordinate it, it can punish it, it can discipline, it can ultimately take life, but it cannot give life. Pilate has the power to take life, but he does not have the power of life. Which in regard to truth, we've already said, well then he doesn't have the truth. Pilate's question you know, is usually taken as a kind of ironic expression of skepticism. This is the way Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, he says this is the most subtle witticism of all time. He says that this Roman prefect annihilated the New Testament. And of course, Nietzsche is going to say truth is power and power is truth. Very similar to what Francis Bacon says, by the way. Knowledge is power. Nietzsche will conclude that we can construct through power regimes of truth. This is what Michael Foucault talks about. Regimes, regimes of power are determinative of the truth. And we might say Pilate is the head of a regime of truth, the truth of Caesar, the truth of Rome. And this is what Christ is confronting. It's interesting, Foucault describes this in a book called Discipline and Punish. What he's saying is the truth is a product of the power to discipline and punish. The implication is that truth is a kind of construct. It's a, uh, you know, that it's, it's appropriate, that it's in a trial hosted by one of the most powerful regimes ever in the history of the world. Rome rules the world. Now saying this, it may seem unlikely to say, oh, there is a concept of truth in which it is a construct. But I think we witnessed this in Japan. What is considered true, I realized, is very much a product of social engineering. If you go back, you know, even the idea of being Japanese or Japanese-ness, the Shinto religion is the state religion. Uh, my nephew has written an entire book on this. You can go back to the councils in the Meiji reform and they sit around and discuss, okay, we're going to create a religion. I mean, they already had Shinto, but they're going to create state Shinto. And through this, they're going to define what it means to be Japanese. Today, the whole idea of big business and you know capital is very much tied to notions of being Japanese. It's created a compliant, willing workforce in Japan. And again, let me say, this fits with our need for a salvation that is holistic, cultural, that takes all aspects into account, socioeconomic, political. And that's the role of the church. So in this understanding, truth is produced by the very power you know, to punish, to discipline, to kill. 
You don't believe this and you won't live. Truth is the effect of the constraints of power. Don't you know, Pilate says to Jesus, that I can crucify you. And what is valid is given validity then through the power of the culture. The elites of a particular culture have the power to pronounce what is true. So truth in this false understanding, I'm saying, is a system, an order. It is produced, regulated, distributed, circulated by kingdoms and cultures. It's linked by a circulation in terms of power, which produce it and sustain it. And the power, and of course the truth then, uh, the effects of the power is that it redirects it. It it is a kind of self-sustaining system. Now, I say I saw this in Japan, but when I came back to the United States after 20 years, guess what I saw here? You, you, you may not get it if you've been absorbed by this culture, but in our 20-year absence, there arose new outlets uh, for you know, Fox News, talk radio, and even churches and political climate had bought into this shaping of the truth that I believe has been unleashed upon us since the 1980s. We missed this. And I came back and I couldn't believe what had happened to Christianity. Because it's aligned with this kind of... uh, There's a Netflix uh, video, the, the question that is asked, you know, the brainwashing of my dad. This woman whose dad was a very congenial, loving father began to listen to talk radio, to Rush Limbaugh and to receive, you know, the political right wing. And he got madder and madder and became this angry guy. Uh, And so she couldn't understand the transformation of her father, who was kind of a non-political Democrat, uh, into a right wing fanatic. And so in the documentary, it's very interesting because she goes through and discovers what happens. It's very similar. You can trace these things. Definite things happen. So he was listening to three hours a day to Rush Limbaugh, who who just says he's an entertainer. He doesn't claim to be, you know, he's not doing the news. He was inundated by right wing. How is this possible? Um, You know, the ditto heads. I'd never, these people are, they call up, it's like, a cult, she compares it. They call up and say ditto or mega ditto like we would say amen in a cult, you know. They just say, oh, whatever he says, we agree with that. And Christians do not seem then, they, they, they bought into this, that uh, a kind of inadequate understanding of truth. And by the way, in the video, in the documentary you go through, you, you can just identify Passages in, you know, Roger Ailes arises under uh, the GOP and the mixed Nixon administration, the Powell memo. There's a series of political things that happen that allows con- you know, corporate uh, conglomerates to own news outlets, to have, which used to be illegal before the 1980s. By the way, the, the film ends happy because at the end... The, the woman's mother begins to, she gets control, the TV control, 
<laughs> he can't go back to Fox. He doesn't know how to get back to Fox News. And he begins to, she begins to put, so he turns, he, and you can watch it. It's kind of funny. This angry old guy, he suddenly softens up and he's saying, oh yeah, you know. <laughs> so, I think there is a dividing line between, between two types of truth. Uh, one has to do with a kind of, you know, uh, lust of the eyes or pride of the light of life. Uh, seeing is believing. And the other human language uh, or human frames of knowing, uh, or rather in this, I think there is a, a necessary gap. And this gap, think here of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this gap creates the possibility of deception, of the manipulation of truth. That's precisely what the serpent, that's what deception, that's what fallenness is, is about. So, you know, if I make a simple statement a, a, about a cat or a table, you know, there is the cat, there is the table, there's a distance, there's a distinction between what is said and what is meant. And within this distinction, falsity or deception can intervene. But between Christ and the truth, there is no distance, there is no gap. There is no deception that can enter in. When you confront Christ, you've encountered the truth. The very essence of Christ is identified with the revelation of God, with his absolute self-revelation. Even as I am, you know, my kingdom uh, is not of this world, Jesus says in this conversation. And of course, what he means, my way of truth is not of this world. So the irreducibility of the truth of Christianity to any thought or to any form or of knowledge or science I think is one of the major themes of Christianity itself. Joel's about to go off to Baylor University and study philosophy of language. I hope that what she encounters there in this Christian university is the understanding that there is a connectedness between the logos, the word of Christ and the truth that is not to be had in any other notion of language, science, or philosophy. Christianity stands opposed to a tradition of Western thought oriented toward the world and toward obtaining knowledge that is objective, out there, scientific. And I, I don't think this is just Western notions. I think this is the universal failed notion of truth. This is the Greek notion. The forms are out there. And false notions of truth always abstract the truth from us. It's out there. It's up there. It's in this phenomena. It's in this experience. And so there is a final irreducibility of the truth of Christianity to any of these worldly forms of knowledge or science. Jesus seems to be on trial for his life. And in this trial, the truth will be uncovered. Of course, the resurrection. He cannot, you know, the grave cannot contain him. The truth of Rome cannot hold him. The law of Rome will not keep him back. When he rolls away the stone from his tomb, he breaks the Roman seal. He's breaking the law, isn't he? In a sense. 
But Christ is the resurrection and the life. He says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. He tells in Acts, it says, go stand in the temple courts and tell these people these words of life. The divine essence in John 6.48 is that He is life. He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. So Pilate may have the power of death. And his understanding is that he who has the power of death in some way controls the truth. But Jesus' self-revelation concerns the essence of life. And this is the truth. What is revealed in Christ is life. And life is revealed. It's synonymous with the truth. Jesus says, I praise you, Father, in the prayer in Matthew 11, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. He who will accept Jesus has accepted the truth. There is a way of immediately understanding the equation of truth to Christ and understanding the abstractions. You know, think of love here. Love is never an abstraction. It's an immediate, imminent, in the flesh, in the situation kind of understanding, isn't it? You know, if you say to somebody, well, I love humanity, but I don't particularly like you. Uh, That's our tendency. You know, that's Charlie Brown, by the way. That's the peanuts. Uh, That we tend to abstract ourselves out of any particular situation. God is love, and love is nothing other than the self-revelation of God, understood in this immediate phenomenological essence. The self-enjoyment of absolute life and love is who God is, and when we enter into Christ, we enter into the life of God. And this is why the love of God is the infinite love in which he eternally loves himself, and in the revelation of God, it is the love of Christ, it is the love of God that gives us life. There's urgent questions that arise here. If the truth of Christianity finds its essence in life, and if this essence of life is that of God Himself, then what relation can such a life have with what we usually call by this name? And I think that once we get this, we understand, oh, that we encounter God in all of life. In the trial, the Jews, Pilate, the Romans are all following Paul's universal rule. There's a a, a simple law here. Will you do evil that good may abound? They would answer yes. We're going to kill Christ that the nation might be saved. Pilate will say there is no case against the man, but we will need to kill him in order to preserve the peace here in Rome. I believe those are always the choices. To abstract ourselves from the immediate situation and say, well, I'm sorry I have to do evil to you in order that the greater good might be accomplished. Evil is always a necessity foisted upon us by the greater good. And what we're describing is a truth that is immediate to the situation in which we will do the good that's immediately right there before us. We will love in the immediate situation. 
A theology built upon abstraction. We've described this. It will interpret the trial so that there is no discrimination between Pilate, the Jews, Christ. They're all part of God's sovereign plan. Roman law, God's law are all united to bring about the death of Jesus. This is Luther. This is Calvin. But this is Protestantism. God is simply working out his providential intent to punish Jesus under the law so that he might be punished for all. And Rome with its God Caesar is not being judged in this false understanding. But Rome's law and justice are perfectly adequate for God's purposes. I think this is exactly wrong. There's a confrontation in this trial between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, between the truth of God and the truth of man, between the justice of God and the justice of man. Love, truth, ethics cannot be obtained by hate, lies, dealing in death. That You say, well, of course they can't. That's nonsense. But understand, that's the way the world works. Let me get personal. Gina Haspel was testifying this week before the Senate. And they were asking her a very simple question. She had run black op sites in Thailand where they, ter- they, they terrorized, they uh, tortured people. And uh, Kamala Harris, the senator, quizzed her about the morality of this waterboarding. And Haspel in her pl- reply, I'm just saying this because it's very theologically interesting. She refused to say that waterboarding is unethical because it is legal. If it's legal, it can't be unethical, right? Harris presses the question, and Haspel answers with a tautology. She says, we have committed ourselves to the higher moral standards we hold ourselves to. Do you hear that? She said nothing. It's a tautology. We hold our, we're committed to what we believe, is what she's saying. This is what Jacques Derrida says about all law reduces. The law is the law. It always reduces to a tautology. Truth is power. He who makes the law determines the truth. That's what we're hearing in her answer, right? It's legal, therefore it's ethical, therefore it's good, therefore we should do it. In the most chilling part of the exchange... Harris insists that she answer the question. Just answer yes or no. Haspel's response, it it seems to come from the darkest annals of history. She says, we should hold ourselves to the moral standard outlined in the Army Field Manual. That's her highest standard, the Army Field Manual. If it's there, it's ethical. I don't know if you know who Adolf Eichmann is. He's on trial in Jerusalem because he helped with the genocide of the Holocaust. He provided the transportation. And in the trial, his defense is, I was just following orders. It's in the army field manual. I was just obeying like a good bureaucrat should. The rawest, worst sort of evil arises if we cannot stand back and say this law, this form of justice, this notion of truth 
is mistaken. It's wrong. It's evil. Eichmann on trial, his last words in the trial, he says, I had to obey the rules of war and of my flag. I had to obey my Fuhrer because he is my truth. Law is law. And this is a very German Lutheran version, I think. Jesus' death will be explained according even to this absolute. The divine economy in this understanding does not intervene, but it just is part of this, I think, what is unmitigated evil. Hitler, by the way, was hailed as God's spokesman. Salvation is being worked out according in this understanding to this codified legal, human, moral understandings. And given this theological understanding that human law and God's law is one, I think there is no end of divinely sanctioned evil. Truth is not connected to life in this understanding. It's not connected to ethics. It's not connected to regimes of power. And that's why it's important that Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. I am the way. I am the truth. Truth is, it is not produced. It's not valorized or sustained like the politics, you know, by politics or kingdoms of this world. A regime of truth, you know, in which truth is produced by the power. Truth in this understanding is simply a tactic. It's a power relation. Christ undoes the truth of the world that he is he is an access to the infinity of God's self-love to a radical subjectivity that admits no outside to the eminence of effective life found you know beyond the despair the fate that is attached to our kind of objectifying notions of truth the kingdom of God accomplishes itself in the here and now the truth of Christ through the love of God. All problems of lack, ambivalence, false projection are resolved, I think. Christ's discourse, you know, I think they're without equivalent in history. The words of Christ, they're absolutely unique. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in this, the Christian gospel, God himself speaks. And Christianity gives us access to absolute final truth. Let's say.